This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. All right, good afternoon. We only have one hour to cover a million years of history, so we're going <laughs> to get started. Uh, my name is Troy. I'm one of the librarians. Thanks for coming today. Uh, we're very honored to have two of our uh, great history instructors here, uh, Mary Fleece and Jim McIntyre, to cover the 10 most pivotal events in Middle East history. Um, the idea for this came out of the fact that um, these guys teach the Middle East history class, and I thought, what a cool way to show off that class and have some useful discussion. Um, so I, the way I understand it is that Mary is starting around the Big Bang and, and oh no, Jim is starting around the Big Bang and ending around Napoleon, and then Mary is going from you know Napoleon up to the present. 20th century. 20th century up to the present. Nothing happened after Napoleon. Yes, yeah, so there's a kind of hole in the middle. But so anyway, so this is an interesting academic discussion. Obviously, there's an infinite amount of things that happen in Middle East history over <laughs> that time period. So there's going to be some interesting. Um, Viewpoints given, but there's not like there's an exact top ten list. So you know, keep that in mind. I would encourage you to come to your library and read about the history of the Middle East and to take their class for the other things outside of their top ten that they're not covering today. So with that, I will turn it over to Mary and Jim. Thank you all for coming, and look forward to it. Okay, we'll see if I actually need this. Um, I'm usually loud enough without a microphone, so can you hear me? I have to use a microphone. Um, okay. In all seriousness, yes, the, when we first actually sat down and thought of the project that we're presenting here today, the, the sheer idea of narrowing down to ten events, something along the lines of ten millennia worth of history, is daunting in and of itself. This is by no means a complete list. Um, and for my part, actually, one of the first things I had to do was to, in, in my preparation of this presentation, was throw out the concept of event per se. Um, as you'll see very quickly. Okay. They didn't, everyone didn't decide somewhere back in 10,000 BCE that, okay, now today we're all going to be monotheists. This is a process that occurred that works out over some time, and also some of the some of the pivotal moments, such as the Neolithic Revolution that happens in, in what's now modern Iraq. Um, again, a revolution that lasts 3,000 years seems more evolutionary than revolutionary. So, and that's a world event. So we're kind of also constricted in our scope here. Um, and one last point: uh, the the procedure that we're following here is that. I'm going to give my five, which are going to run up to the early 19th century. Mary's going to give her five. And then afterwards, you're not going to just be a passive audience. We, are going to, we actually have something, a handout that we're going to distribute, and you guys can rank these in order of significance, okay, just working amongst yourselves. Mine are purely chronological, as are Mary's. There's no sort of arbitrary decision. This is what happened first, and this is what happened next. Um, Monotheism is usually something that is attributed to, in most Western Civ texts even, to the ancient Israelites. However, in my research, one of the things I came across is that most historians and archaeologists today attribute it to a group called the Hyksos, who actually moved south out of what is now Turkey um, and the Levant, 
and their main site is along the Jordan River in Jordan, um, and it is here, the Mikdal Temple, uh, which was in use between the 17th and about the 11th century or even later BCE, before Common Era. Um, for anyone who's, who's taken my Western Civ class, um, the, the source on the ancient Israelites is the Old Testament, which is, has its own problems. Um, if you only have one source, that's, that's what you've got. Anyhow, um, Abraham and the founders, that's a distinct group, but monotheistic, not really until the New Kingdom period in Egypt, where you're talking about somewhere between 1550 and 1000 BCE. So this, this group comes a little bit earlier. Significance, why is this important? Who cares? Um, we should care because this sets the pattern that you see in the West as far as religion as an institution goes. Monotheism wins out. And so you have this progression from Judaism through Christianity and Islam and, and down to the modern age. Next we have um, the Roman Empire, Roman conquest. In the first century BCE, the Romans move in and they stay. This is a tough call because, you know, we all want it to be Alexander. He's got the dash. He's a cavalryman. He... You know, but Alexander, and, and you know, he's he's Greek or Macedonian, depending on who you ask. Um, but he, Alexander comes and goes and then dies, and so <laughs> so his so the region is broken up between his successors, and there's no real permanent standing here. The Romans come in in the first century B.C.E. and pick a date for when they leave, in the sense that the Western Empire falls around. Most historians say 476 CE, so about 500 years there in the area, bringing their government, their culture, their organization, their administration through. Um, you can even argue that it's until the 12th, 13th century with the Byzantine Empire, which is the successor of the Roman Empire in the East. And again, their significance, they leave a fairly solid imprint of an administrative model um, the Roman Empire lasted so long because it worked. Administratively, the way they handled things, the way they organized territory and collected taxes worked fairly well. And Orlando Bloom, <laughs> um, who is the Crusade, the Crusades, and, and look, in all honesty, yes, Orlando Bloom and Kingdom of Heaven, which is a really interesting movie on all sorts of levels, um, but... In all seriousness, and, and anyone who's taken a Western Civ class with me knows, my presentation of the Crusades is it's a tragedy for the simple fact that um, the Byzantine Emperor Alexius Comnenus asks for help. He wants troops. In around 1095, he sends a call off to the Pope Urban II, and he wanted military troops. Um, the Pope takes it on himself to, cre to preach this pilgrimage in arms. That leads to a uh, period of military campaigns that go on till about 1291. There are six major crusades, the first of which is the only one that on a military level is successful. Their goal was to liberate Jerusalem. Um, what they managed to do in 1099 was sack the city of Jerusalem for a week, and that's the closest they came. The significance here, what does it result in? Well, I, I would argue that the Crusades in total, on the on one hand, they engender the distrust between a lot of religious groups in the re region that still persist to this day. Okay. 
On the other hand, they do lead to a reconnection in trade with, with long-term ramifications on a global scale. Okay? Um, this is where Europeans come in contact with spices and they want them. And the fact that the Crusades have, pre have promoted so much bad relations between Europe and the Middle East where they can get access to these spices kind of pushes a drive to go westward, i.e. Columbus. Okay. Um, building on this, Oh, actually, before leaving this, I should also, one of my favorite characters from the crusading movement is Saladin, okay, the king of Syria, who's often dropped out of. Okay. Um, but again, a brilliant strategist, a brilliant politician and diplomat who actually builds an alliance that fights the best that Europe has to offer. Uh, Richard II and Philip Augustus fights them to a standstill till they finally negotiate a peace in the Third Crusade and say, hey, look, um, you know, as long as we can get access to Jerusalem for everybody, that's okay. Then the Fourth Crusade, which really goes off track, instead of coming to the Middle East, they sacked the city of Constantinople, pretty much destroying the Byzantine Empire they'd sought out to help. Um, and just to give you an idea of the power of past events, okay, um, not that sack of Constantinople. Oh. Uh, <laughs> um, it was trashed a couple times. Um, interestingly, and this didn't catch a whole lot of news, uh, news attention here, but back in 2000, then Pope John Paul II made a visit to Athens. Okay, um, and press reception for this abroad was kind of mixed in a lot of ways. And what's interesting to me about this is the first thing he did when he lands at Athens Airport was actually there were a couple representatives of the Eastern Orthodox Church there to meet him, and he formally apologized for the sack of Constantinople in 1204. The press reception that he received as a result was all glowing, especially in the Greek language news. So the power of events, even, you know, Constantinople sacked in 1204. This is 800 years later. And it has bearing on people's outlook, people's uh, perception of current events. It colors our present. Okay, um, this sack of Constantinople. This sack of Constantinople, um, and that's really what it looked like. Really, um, 1453, Mehmed II. Okay, the significance here is that now Turkey, the, which becomes really the Ottoman Empire. Um, there's a long period, several hundred years, of indigenous development of culture without, sort of, without interference, without connection to Europe. That comes to an end in 1798. This is, this is my last one, but this actually sets up a lot of the... It, and it's often missed in the history books. But I kind of like this guy. Um, Napoleon. Here's the situation. Napoleon in 1796-1797 conducts a brilliant campaign in Italy um, on a shoestring defeats the Austrian Empire and becomes very popular amongst the army. Okay? And so he also has this idea of, I want to invade Egypt. Why? <laughs> well, from the French government perspective, by now there is colonization going on in a very limited way, very much driven by trade. Okay, so for the French government, this is a way that they can t indirectly attack England. England trades with India through the Red Sea. They cross through Suez. 
So Napoleon seizes Suez, cuts off England from their moneymaker in India. Okay. Napoleon's personal motive, you know, I'm 26, and by the time he was 26, Alexander had, co had conquered Persia. I don't measure up. He was, he was an overachiever. He did have a Napoleonic <laughs> complex, yes. A bit of a megalomaniac. But, um, now, for the French government, when he really, Napoleon very actively promotes this scheme. Hey, this is what I want to do. Um, and the French government takes him up on it. And you can almost, you know, the French government that week was called the Directory. Okay? And you can almost picture these directors leading France going, okay, look, if he goes and succeeds, it damages our opponent. If he goes and fails, we've got a very, you know, very possibly dangerous political rival to our government, and he's gone. This is a win-win. Okay, um, and it's not the military aspect of Napoleon's campaign that really is important here, um, at least from the French perspective. His campaign, he wins a couple battles. He wins the Battle of the Pyramid. He wins pyramids. He wins the Battle at Aboukir Bay. Um, by and large, most of his campaign is a, is a military mess. Um, he abandons his army, commits desertion, runs back to France, and, and so they make him emperor. Um, anyhow, what's really important, though, is to stop this from happening. And, and the, you know, one of the things that the directory must not have really thought about what they were doing because they sent, some, as they sent a shipload of shovels with Napoleon, and they, they were telling him to dig a canal between the Mediterranean and Suez. Um, anyone who's familiar with the construction of the Suez Canal, it took much, much more than a couple guys with shovels. Um, at any rate, he moved into Syria. Um, much of his army dies there of plague. But to stop this French threat, the British send Lord Horatio Nelson, Admiral Nelson, and they win the Battle of the Nile, okay? And the, French, or the English stay in Egypt, okay? So this begins this whole period of sort of Europeans moving into the region, setting up shop and staying. Lastly, what's really important here, okay? Twofold significance. One, Napoleon, when he does fight, does pretty well. So the Ottoman Empire, okay, starts to bring in European military technology. But, and again, my 211 students can just kind of close your ears now because you've heard this so often, okay? You, you can't just bring in the technology from a foreign culture. Some of the culture comes with it. So you basically have the Ottoman Empire um, and a number of the other regional states bringing in the products of the European Enlightenment, okay? And that's not always a comfortable fit. Um, finally, you have, again, the establishment of this European presence that's going to remain and that's going to expand. And the reason I use this picture, Napoleon had actually brought with him a number of French academics, and one of the things they do discover in Egypt is the Rosetta Stone, which is the key to unlock the ancient languages. Um, it also leads to something that what historian Edward Said has labeled Orientalism. Okay. In other words, these French academics who come back to Europe and write their journals of Napoleon's campaign and what they've seen create a mindset. They create an outlook, a viewpoint that is very much adopted in Europe and remains. Um, and, it's, and it's the viewpoint that Europe is pressing ahead while the Middle East remains 
with the pharaohs, okay, that there's a disconnect. Um, and again, I'm not saying that this is reality. This is a constructed image that occurs in Europe by Europeans, um, and not really even the ones who were with Napoleon, by the people who read their works. Okay, so those are my five. Okay. Hello, everybody. both Troy and uh, Jim alluded to, this is uh, a very subjective list of pivotal moments in, in Middle East history. So I would encourage you, because it is subjective to uh, your absolutely, this is an academic institution, if you disagree with, uh, with my choices, let me know. I, I'm, uh, I'm uh, definitely open, open to that. But we're going to start first. We're picking it up. Actually, uh, Jim's last point kind of gives me a nice segue into mine, uh, which is, uh, thank you, sir. Um, Coming into the Balfour Declaration, which we are, um, in, in, we have to start around uh, World War One Palestine, which is important to note that at this point Palestine is under Ottoman Turkish occupation during World War One, and the British, of course, who were already in Egypt along with the French, um, acting in a style similar that they had done throughout Africa and um, in Southeast Asia and other places, would sort of go into places and sort of carve it up and say, we'll take this portion, you take this portion, and sort of this arbitrary um, um, redrawing of the borders as was done in Africa. But with all of this, this theme of, you know, we're not going to consult the people who live there. We're just going to make decisions on behalf of them, and, you know, we'll just see what happens. So as you're going to see, some of these decisions that were made are going to have lasting repercussions on the Middle East. Um, so this is, this is an image here of, of Palestine. This is actually post-World War I. But we're going to, I'm going to actually probably come back and forth between, thank you, these two slides. So we're in World War I, and I'm not going to get into the, the main logistics, but other than to tell you that we've got the Allies, the British, the French, um, the Russians, eventually the Americans, fighting the Central Powers, the Germans, the Austro-Hungarians, and the Ottoman Turkish Empire. The British designs on the Middle East were not necessarily Palestine in the beginning. Their, their big goal, can anyone take a guess what their goal was even from then? Well, the Suez Canal is already built, but if we're talking a little bit further east from Palestine, an area that we're quite familiar with today, um, their, their concern was more of, of oil in Iraq, which is eventually going to be modern-day Iraq, and, and Iran. That was their main, that was their main particular goal. Um, Palestine was just an extra, extra bonus for them. So uh, coming back here now to, uh, to the post-World War I era, um, the, the British were basically playing both Arabs and Jews off of one another. In the case of, of the Arabs, they were trying to get Arab support to fight against uh, the Ottoman Turks. And in, case, in the case of the Jews, they were hoping to get Jewish support in places like Russia and in places like the United States for uh, the war, for, towards the war effort. So basically, they're doing two things at once. It's almost a case of the right hand. And I, I wouldn't necessarily say it was only just diabolical scheming. I truly think there was just some ineptitude that the right hand didn't know what the left hand was doing, along with diabolical scheming. There's room for that, too. Um, but it certainly caused some, some confusion. So what you have before you here, um, the... Thank you. Thank you, yes, sir. Um, is a letter written by the Foreign Secretary, Balfour, Alfred Balfour, to Lord Rothschild. Lord Rothschild was the head of the British Zionist um, agency in England. Can anyone tell me what Zionism is? 
the Zionist movement, what that refers to? Right. Thank you, Trish. The idea of, of a Jewish homeland, establishment of a Jewish homeland, not a necessarily brand new idea, but an, an idea that was galvanized in the late 19th century into the 20th century. Now, the letter, I don't know if you can see it. It's kind of, I tried to make it as big as possible. Maybe I should stand out of the way so you can see it here. Um, but the letter basically says, well, I'm making this worse now. Let's go back this way. But the letter basically says that the British are, are looking upon with favor the idea of opening up the area of Palestine to Jewish migration. Again, the common denominator here being that let's not talk to the people who are there and see if it's okay with them, but let's just go ahead and promise away the land, um, something that occurs over and over again. So, the reason why this is a pivotal moment is because this sets up the seeds. And I, I don't wish to say that there were no Jews in the area of Palestine before. There were. But this certainly opens up the floodgates for Jewish migration from the 20s into the 30s. World War II is going to uh, slow it down somewhat, but it's going to get sped up then uh, shortly thereafter. Thank you, sir. Which brings me to the next point, the creation of the State of Israel. So this is pivotal moment number two. We're in May of 1948 here. And in order to understand this, you've got to go back again a little bit um, to uh, Germany of the 1930s, the Holocaust of World War II, and the subsequent large amounts of Jewish refugees uh, coming out of, of that war. Now, this is where uh, things get, uh, get, well, the whole thing is interesting, but I think it gets particularly interesting. Um, you know, I, I always talk with my students about, you know, why is it that you think that, you know, the British and eventually the, Amer the Americans were supportive of the idea of a Jewish homeland elsewhere? You know, why didn't they necessarily bring those refugees to their countries and absorb them there? because they didn't necessarily want all of those refugees in their own countries. And so um, the, um, the, the British at this point are still holding the mandate for Palestine, um, but at this point are, are getting attacked from both the Arab side and the Jewish side. They're getting uh, actually physical attacks, uh, um, uh, killings and blowing up of hotels and um, just an all-out disaster. The British say enough is enough. We can't do this anymore. We're out of here. We're done. This is, again, set within the context of post-World War II. They were devastated by the war, had their own problems at home, and said that we cannot take this burden on anymore. It was massive amounts of troops, logistics. It cost a lot of money to occupy a place, as we well know. And so the British decide uh, in 1947 that they are going to pull out um, of Palestine. They're going, they're going to turn the mandate that they, were, that they were given, which I have to laugh at that because it says in a couple of the books, the British were given this mandate, and it's like the British sort of took the mandate for uh, Palestine. Um, but this is, this is the, they turn this over to the UN, and the UN in a 11-member country body comes up with a partition plan for what they think that this area should look like. Can you, can you folks see here on this side of my blocking the map? Okay. If you notice, uh, the area that's in, in orange would be an Arab state. The area that is in sort of the greenish-bluish would be a Jewish state. The city of Jerusalem, right there in the center of the, the Arab state, uh, would have been considered an international city. Now, why would that be? Why would Jerusalem need to be an international city? Sure. Sure, it's, it's a, it's, thank you. It's, it's a site that's important to all three of the major religions, to Judaism, Christiana, Christianity, and Islam. So the thinking was, this is a hot potato. We don't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole. It should just be an international city. Nobody should control it. 
didn't quite turn out that way, um, as, as you will see. So then we get to uh, now May of 1948. The, the British have now pulled out of Palestine, and, um, and, and Jews that are, have now been increasing numbers uh, coming to, to Palestine now create a state, declare themselves to be a state. And that would be, um, if, uh, I think there's one more, thank you, May 14th, uh, 1948. So, they declare themselves to be the state of Israel. Now, I can go out and declare that I am the queen of Egypt, but if nobody else is going to recognize that I'm the queen of Egypt, it doesn't really mean too much, although I would like to be the queen of Egypt, that'd be a nice idea. But anyway, um, in this case, the Israelis declared themselves to be a state. Eleven minutes after they declared themselves to be a state, the United States recognizes Israel, thereby giving it legitimacy. Uh, there's a point that I always try to make to my students about this. This is a very important point, which is that Palestine, the Palestinians are a nation of peoples, but they're not a nation state in the sense that they have sovereignty, their own, let's say, army, their own uh, borders, you know, uh, sort of like the Kurds, for example. Israel now, through getting its legitimacy through recognition, world recognition, is now a nation state, meaning that countries are countries are going to send their ambassadors there, they're going to have diplomatic relations with Israel. And that is, of course, a pivotal moment. The moment that Israel declares itself to be a state, um, they're attacked by surrounding Arab states who are not happy about uh, now a Jewish state right in the center of the Middle East. Well, not necessarily the center, but on, right there in the Middle East. So, um, the fighting uh, goes on for, um, from May of 1948. An armistice is declared in early 49. And you have basically the settlement, and I don't know if you can see, an armistice is declared. Not necessarily peace treaties are not signed. There's just a stop in the fighting. They stop fighting. And uh, if you notice there, on the map, the area that's the West Bank, the green area there, is under Jordanian control, uh, with the city of Jerusalem, essentially East Jerusalem, being also under Jordanian control. Um, and the Gaza Strip in pink there is under Egyptian control. And so when the armistice is declared, that's basically what you have. You have the, 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 this fledgling state of Israel um, with the West Bank and East Jerusalem still under Jordanian control and Egypt controlling the Gaza Strip. That came out loud. Thank you, Jim. Which brings us to uh, 1967. Now, there are, are things that happen in between, um, but again, we're talking the most pivotal moments here. And... Um, Basically, the political makeup since the, since the declaration of the State of Israel has never been the same. The political makeup of the Middle East has never been the same, obviously. Which brings us now to 1967. Um, you still have Arab countries who are, are unhappy with, with the State of Israel even in existence. Um, you have issues with Egypt and, or excuse me, with Israel and Syria over borders. And actually, Jim, I'm going to go back one, actually. Sorry. Thank you. Um, so you can see the map here. Thank you. Uh, the issues with, with uh, Israel and Syria over water, over clashes at the border. The newly created Palestinian Liberation Organization is uh, launching attacks into Israel um, through Jordan. And, uh, and Israel's not happy about that. Egypt and Jordan have now signed a defense pact. Um, Egypt and Syria also had a defense pact, but that, that didn't last for, uh, for too long. Um, but so basically now we get, to, we get to June of 1967, and the Israelis now take a move, make a move uh, that's going to have lasting repercussions. This is the Six-Day War. They, take, they, they uh, preemptively strike against their enemies, um, and basically in the process tripling their land. Uh, thank you. I should have probably had those in reverse. But. Okay, so if you notice now, 
This, the Six-Day War is called the Six-Day War for an obvious reason. It lasted for six days. Um, and in the process, Israel tripled its land. It went from, it took the, the West Bank, it took the Sinai Peninsula, which is uh, the area there to the left of the yellow, uh, the Gaza Strip from Egypt. So it took both the Sinai and the Gaza Strip from Egypt, um, all of the West Bank, and the Golan Heights from Syria, effectively tripling their land. This was a humiliating defeat um, for the Arab nations. And again, this is also uh, just extremely pivotal because this is, this is all changing the makeup again for a while, but this is also going to eventually lead to a peace process between Egypt and Israel. Um, a peace process where Egypt and Israel sign a treaty. Egypt agrees to, this is going to come later in the 1970s, Egypt will agree to recognize Israel. And then about two years later, uh, the president of Egypt gets assassinated in the process. So, another, um, sorry, can I go? yeah, thank you. Another point that comes out of this as well is that once this land has been taken and Israel has tripled its borders, um, you, well, you've got two things happening. One was that the Israeli government was effe effectively looking at this land as bargaining chips. And as, as I said, they will eventually bargain with the uh, Egyptians to give them back to Sinai in exchange for recognition. Um, but another point is that you now start having settlements Jewish settlements uh, pouring into this area that was previously Arab. And this is also going to have a dramatic effect on, on uh, Middle East relations later on. So now we're at pivotal moment number four, the Iranian Revolution. This is a big one. There are a lot of repercussions that come out of this. Now, in order to understand this, um, we, I'm going to show you, I've got actually a couple of video clips here to show you as well. But the, the ruler of Iran was uh, Mohammad Reza Shah, the prince of Iran, whose father had taken over in the 1920s and then he was given power in the 1940s because his father was a bit too friendly with the Nazis. And it's safe to say that he was a very close friend of the United States. To give you an idea of how close of a friend he was, uh, when he was uh, uh, thrown out of office in 1952, the CIA reinstated him back into power in 1953. One of those awkward moments. Here you are again. And the reason why the CIA um, uh, put him back into power was because the man who was democratically elected, um, Mohammad Mossadegh, who was a socialist, um, nationalized, took over the Anglo-Iranian oil company, which means effectively that all the proceeds from the Anglo-Iranian oil company would be going to Iran, as opposed to uh, a, a multinational corporation. And uh, the, both the British and the Americans were not necessarily happy with that idea and overthrew Mohammad Mossadegh and reinstated the Shah. So it's safe to say that the Shah and the United States were friends. And I'm going to play for you a, a clip here. Oh, no. Oh, we don't have the Internet on here. Okay, so we're not playing the clip. <laughs> um, okay, so the, I, I did forget that I did need the Internet. Um, that's okay. A little momentary bump here. Um, so... The, as, uh, the, the clip I was going to show you was a clip of Mohammad Reza Shah in the United States with President Kennedy, and they're just talking about what great friends they are and how much they love one another, and this is so wonderful. And, and so the Shah rules Iran again from 1953 to 1979. Now, from our perspective, uh, this is the, the context of the Cold War, we were friendly with people who were, hmm, let's say, not necessarily the most democratic type leaders, but it served our purposes because they were also anti-Marxist, anti-Soviet 
Now, in the case of the Shah, if you were Iranian, you wouldn't necessarily be happy about the fact that Iran, that the Shah had about a billion dollars in oil wealth himself. His family had billions, and when I say billions, that's with a B, B as in boy billions, not just measly old millions. They had lots of money and uh, would throw these lavish parties with these tent cities that they would erect in the desert. And um, he also had a, um, quashed any type of opposition to his rule. Um, and, and there were some also trying to modernize Iran at the same time, something that some people there were not necessarily happy about. Uh, women not wearing the veil, women um, you know, wearing Western clothing, um, you know, the high heels, the pantyhose, all that stuff. So... Now it brings us to November, not, it brings us to 1979, not November yet, we're, but we're in, in 77 through 79. There are massive protests taking place against the Shah all the time. And you almost have this cycle of, of violence in which people would be out there protesting, the police would fire onto the crowd, arrest a bunch of people, and then the same cycle would happen over and over again. Well, it got to the point where the Shah basically, his own life was threatened. And in late January of 79, the Shah decides he has to leave Iran. It's either leave Iran or probably be captured and killed by your own people. So he leaves Iran, and a man who had been in exile, who had been opposing uh, the Shah for years, calling for his um, overthrow, the Ayatollah Khomeini, comes from Paris in February of 79 and takes over Iran. And Iran uh, basically becomes an Islamic republic after that. Now, what repercussions does this have? It's got some, some big ones here. Uh, one of them for U.S.-Iranian relations is that in November of 79, because we were so friendly with the Shah still, the Shah at this point had cancer and was kind of wandering through the world without really a place to live, um, the United States allowed the Shah to come to New York for cancer treatment. Well, Iranians looked upon that as, well, here we go, this is 1953 all over again. Uh, we don't want to have any part of this. And in November of 79, our own embassy in Tehran, Iran, was taken over by students. Um, and those hostages were held, 56 hostages were held until January of, 70, of 81. So well over a year, a year and several months. And American and Iranian relations have never been normalized since then. We don't talk to Iran. We don't have an embassy in Iran. As a matter of fact, if you were an American living in Iran, you'd have to go to the Swiss embassy to talk to somebody, uh, to talk to an American, because um, there's no consulate or embassy anywhere. And um, there have been some moments in history where things have, have, have softened somewhat, but still the relationship, particularly with the current president, um, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, things are not so, so good. Now, what other repercussions does this have? In September of 1980, Saddam Hussein uh, invades Iran, largely because, well, he does it on the pretext of there's a, there's a border dispute, but the big reason is he's afraid that what just happened in Iran is going to happen to him in Iraq. And so he invades Iran, and a, a war goes on there for eight years. During that time, the United States um, funds Iran against Iraq, and Iraq against Iran. We're giving everybody weapons. Weapons to you, weapons to you. Take them and run. Um, Saddam Hussein, emboldened uh, by his friendship with the United States and believing that basically he's invincible at this point, takes those weapons and in August of 1990 invades Kuwait. Um, U.S. troops are sent to the Middle East. To obviously, I think, well, I shouldn't say obviously because most of you were probably born around that time. I forget that. I realize how old I'm getting. But in August of, of, of 1990 into 91, you've got the Persian Gulf War in which Americans were stationed in Saudi Arabia. 
a point that a man by the name of Osama bin Laden was very unhappy about and caused him, gave him sort of the excuse that he needed to set off upon a course of events that would eventually lead us to September 11th. So this is a, a particularly pivotal moment um, in history. It has, in, and I look at this as, as, as pivotal, not just in terms of Middle East history, but um, also with its relation with the rest of the world, not just in and of itself. So, one final point. Um, this is a picture of this, the fall of the statue of Saddam Hussein, is the Iraq War. Um, now, I'm not going to get into very many points, largely because I think a lot of you already know the events leading up to it, but I will say that in terms of it, it's the reason why it's important. Um, one is that you're also, part of the justification that the U.S. gave into invading Iraq was, well, the Israelis did it in 1967, the, the notion of preemptive strike. Um, and that was used as part of their justification, which I find interesting because the U.S. condemned Israel at the time for doing it in 1967, but now then used the same justification years later to justify why they were invading Iraq. You know, it's been, it's been a number of years. No one's going to remember. Um, so, um, obviously, our relationship with the Middle East has changed dramatically since then. And by that, I mean the American relationship within, with the Middle East. Iran, as a result of this, has become emboldened and stronger, um, a, more of a, a greater powerhouse in, in the Middle East than it probably would have enjoyed had we not done that. Um, and, and beyond that, I think it's, it's safe to say that history will continue to judge it. But in terms of its, of its impact, particularly on the United States and how we are perceived by the world, it's had unbelievable um, uh, impact on us. So with that, that concludes my five pivotal moments. Um, and Jim and I were saying that we would like to take, maybe take questions now from the audience, um, and then perhaps we can, we can rank our, uh, our list here. Um, does anyone have any questions for either Jim or I? Nary a one. Yeah, Trisha. Oh, I don't know, but it's, it's interesting now that uh, <clears throat> we want to make overtures to Iran, mm -hmm. but Israel um, now has a right wing leader, right? Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And isn't he threatening to uh, attack their nuclear capability? Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's still I, I a disconnect. Really question. I just, it's interesting. It's still uh, very sticky. And right. I, I think Enemy. I mean, I'd like to see lines of communication opened up, and I hope that uh, Barack Obama pursues that. Right. The, 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 the comment in question here was about um, the recent election of Benjamin Netanyahu, who's an, an old face in Israeli politics, and, uh, and how um, it's, uh, Israel's relationship with Iran because if, you know, if you've been following Mahmoud Ahmadinejad has gone around saying you know, that, that about the, denying the, exist the existence of the Holocaust um, and, and uh, making incendiary comments about, about Israel in general and Netanyahu is, is, I would say is catering to the people within his own party a lot of uh, the election of, of Netanyahu has more to do with the domestic policies going on in Israel right now um, and I'd say more of that than necessarily with, is with, with Iran but it's also important to note that the Israelis are going to be, there's a difference between talk and their action. They're saying that, but in terms of whether or not they would actually ever go strike against Iran, they would not do that without U.S. approval. And, and Barack Obama is not going to be approving that anytime soon. Well, so. Did uh, Israel strike, uh, did they knock out a reactor? Who was that? Was that Iraq? Iraq. Oh. You're talking about back in the, in the 90s or the yeah. late 90s? 90s? Yeah, Iraq. 
Yeah. Did you want to add something? Yeah. Other questions or comments, just in general? I, I think another point that. Oh yes, go ahead. Yeah, Bill. Well, Mary, twice you've used this uh, idea of preemptive war, mm -hmm. uh, the six-day war. Uh, maybe you could just explain that a little better. I, I thought that was controversial. That. Mm -hmm. uh, it was. It was very controversial. Because the, I, another argument is made that uh, Israel didn't start that war. Mm -hmm. Right. So Where's the, the disconnect? Yeah. yeah. Well, Israel claimed that it was being threatened internally, that with this, this defense pact between, well, the previous one from uh, 1958 between Egypt and Syria, and then a very recent defense pact that I think was 66 between Egypt and Jordan, really scared them, along with, the, with Egypt cutting off Israeli access to the Gulf of Aqaba. And in fact, I'm going to go back a couple slides. Thanks. Oh, wait, I could have just gone to that one here. Uh, oh, no, it's not on there. Well, it's sort of on there. Um, and I don't have a pointer, but... This region right here, cutting off, cutting off a, a Israeli access to those ports. And Israel claimed that basically all this was being, was being geared up towards a strike against them. And that it was up that they had to take that, they had to make that decision to take over that land. Now, that being said, the Prime Minister of Israel at the time was not necessarily thrilled with the notion of doing that, but he was also catering to hardliners within his own party who were saying, you know, this is also our biblical land and it is our right to take it over. So that is also a, a consideration. But yeah, I, th I always find it really interesting and hypocritical that we, um, you know, at the time in the Security Council condemned uh, Israel for doing that and then later on used that same justification for invading Iraq in 2003, which I think that speaks for itself. Along the way here, neither side was particularly attuned to the interests of the Palestinians. This wasn't. No. This really wasn't an issue about. No. The welfare of the Palestinians. Right. Right. That's kind of a common denominator, isn't it? That that we talk about all these things, and it's like, who is not ever being included? Hmm. <laughs> the Palestinians. And I, I've said this before to uh, in our Middle East class talking with some Palestinian students who, who get kind of vehement and upset about this and I said you know it's not that they're getting very much support from Arab countries though either because when, it, when push comes to shove surrounding Arab countries are going to do what serves their national interest and if that means that they're, they're going to you know they'll tout the idea of, of the poor the plight of the Palestinians oh is Saddam Hussein was so sympathetic for the plight of the Palestinians and our brothers in arms and when it came down to it he supported um, uh, Yasser Arafat was supporting kind of the, the yeah I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm so I'm saying basically, basically uses that as an excuse, but then when push comes to shove, never really delivers. And Yasser Arafat found himself in trouble when he supported um, Saddam Hussein during the Gulf War, and then shortly thereafter, well, he lost, so that didn't go over very well. And then he was forced to make peace with the Israelis afterwards because he lost some political clout with that. So, other questions or comments? Yes, sir. Face of the earth. My opinion on that, I think that, that uh, Ahmadinejad engages in a lot of saber rattling. Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily take him very seriously. And uh, I know that Israel does, and I understand why Israelis do feel that way. Um, but I think that he is he's, uh, catering to hardliners in his own government. But there are also plenty of moderates in Iran. And if you look at the population demographically, Iran right now, um, I think I want to say it's over half the population is under the age of 25. 
those people are not interested in, in nuclear power plants or nuclear weapons. They want to get out of Iran because they want the, the, the visa rate, the application for visa rate, the rates for the application of visas is extremely high because they're looking to get out and get an education. So I, I really think that now is the time for constructive dialogue with Iran. It doesn't, I don't think it works when you just shut people off and don't talk to them because when you're talking, you're not fighting. You know, you're not shooting at one another. So I, I, I really do, well, I do think that Ahmadinejad is crazy. Um, I also think that he's um, uh, calculating what he's doing and he's just doing that to, to, to appease hardliners in his own party. What will be interesting to me to see, there's a, a theory out there, and I think it has legitimacy, which is um, uh, the idea of, of, of petrol politics, petrol politics, that when, um, when the price of oil goes down, democracy tends to flourish in the Middle East, largely because a lot of these rulers don't rely on their constituents for taxes. They get most of their money that they work with through oil. And when oil goes down, suddenly their revenue is drying up and you tend to see more reform. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty optimistic in terms of, I think that, we, that now is the time to talk to Iran and not necessarily cut them off. Yes, sir. Uh, there's a, do you want to go pass, them out the, pass out the forms so they all have them already? Okay. Yes, sir. Uh, just following that, mm -hmm. I know in the past uh, Russia has said that they would support Iran. Mm -hmm. Uh, with the Israeli thing because we support Israel. Do you think that's going to change now that uh, there's more relations going on now that the Obama administration is opened up with Russia? Mm -hmm. uh, that's a good question. Did everyone hear that question? Repeat Yeah, the, the idea of uh, whether or not the dynamic... In I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm, uh, no, I'm Jump in, you right? go first, I go. Okay. Um, that whether or not the okay. relationship is is because is, Russia is, is talking about um, being more supportive of Iran right now um, and, you're, and can you Say it one more time. So I'm I was saying uh, in the past, Russia said that they would support Iran and its nuclear policies. Like Israel and the U.S. would support Israel. But now that diplomacy is once again opening up between mm -hmm. Russia and the U.S., how is that going to affect all the relations over there? I don't see Russia doing that. I think that's also saber-rattling in Russia's internal politics. Uh, Vladimir Putin, who is no longer the president, we're always constantly reminded he's no longer the president, but he's still the president. He's still there. He's like the artist formerly known as, um, but he's still there. But um, uh, he's also trying to cater to hardliners within his own government and, and trying to restore Russia's image. And I think a lot of that has to do with Russia trying to show that it's still the, the big power that it once was. And, and um, when push would come to shove, they wouldn't do that because that would mean that would be disastrous for themselves. Um, so, and right now, Russia's own political clout with the declining price of oil right now is a little bit shaky. So I, 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 I just don't view that as a, as a big concern. Maybe I'm naive, but I just, it doesn't seem to me that that's uh, our, our biggest worry right now. And would their lack of support change Iran, do you think? Would Russia's lack of support? Oh, yeah. I mean, they're not going to go act on, they're not, they're not foolish to go act al alone, um, you know. It, there's a difference between, again, a disconnect between what, pe between what people say and what they do. They may say lots of things, but just because they say it doesn't mean they're going to do it. On the other hand, I also understand, going back to Israel, the way that they feel, um, that words do mean a lot, and that it was words that eventually led to the Holocaust, and I understand, I, I completely understand and, and sympathize with that. I think what's going to be interesting to see in the Middle East as time goes on and I've talked about this with my own students, is when the generation that survived the Holocaust, because there's still a lot of them around, when they're gone, 
are things going to change dramatically? Because when you still have that in your subconscious and you lived through it and you remember it, it plays a role in everything that you do. Um, when that generation is now removed and they're no longer there, is that going to make a difference? Go ahead, John. Yeah. Um, I, actually, I was going to I was going to kind of build on Mary's yeah. answer. To you. Um, I, I and I would respectfully disagree with my colleague because I think Putin is actually kind of troubling right now, uh, simply because I think Putin is, and Putin really is more of the Russian government than the Russian government in a lot of ways. The, and and actually, since he's he's someone who now that he's out of office is actually much much more powerful because there's no real restraint on him. How and, and that being said. Um, I think that he viewed the 90s when Russian-U.S. relations were very, very warm as sort of a big downfall for the, from the former Soviet status. Remember, he's former KGB. And those were the good days. For, the Cold War was the good times for the KGB. I mean, that's when they got funding. That's when they were important. They got to torture people and, and do the things they like to. Um, yeah, all the fun stuff. And, and I think that he, he certainly wants to show Russia as, as capable of you know the the whole idea, and maybe this is one too many Bond movies on my part, but Russia as a as a sort of American stooge, you know, um, and I think he just wants to kind of chart much of his own foreign policy for that reason as well to show that hey, look, we are a sovereign state, we can do our own, we we are capable of taking our own autonomous actions. Um, as far as editorial choices, um, on my side of, of the to get to Troy's historiographical question on my side it was one very difficult with the idea of and it leads into a, a bigger question for historians is history event driven or is it a process and you'll notice that many of my five uh, were process rather than event like I started off saying that it wasn't some one day that everyone decided okay now we're going to be monotheists that's a process that works itself out over centuries um, and so I looked at processes that have shaped the Middle East um, at least up and, and some certainly were, were built around events such as Napoleon's campaign in Egypt however the process was really what was more important to me history working itself out as a series of events as a ripple effect that, that continues and sometimes in fact quite often grows much beyond what maybe the initial actors thought would be the consequence you know the, the, uh, I'm sure that, that neither Napoleon nor the directory thought that when they sent him off to, to Egypt that, that this was going to result in a British permanent or semi-permanent involvement in Egypt well into the 20th century. Yeah. Um, so that, that's my two cents on the historiographical question. Well, 
Are, are you asking basically? Um, is this? Oh, did you want to? Uh, yeah, I, I, I think we're both kind of like. Uh, are we talking just heroes and villains, or are we talking like actor versus process? In other words, well, well go ahead. If you, Oh, besides war, you mean? Like, are, I think it depends on the situation. I think they're, they're definitely... Okay. Uh, okay. The, the question was, and please correct me if, I'm, if I misstate, um, that can there ever be a diplomatic solution or is it just going to be resolved? Is, is, um, I, I, this, I'm, this is where I'm getting a little on thin ice. Is the position of Israel just going to be resolved by war or is there a diplomatic solution? Is that does that restate your question, or are you talking regionally? What well, depends uh, on who has yeah. the power, who's holding the purse strings, and in the case of Israel, they've got they, um, yeah. I mean, I think it just it depends on on who's holding the purse strings, who's got the power, and I think a lot of this is is jockeying for position. Um, I think a lot of it in terms of Iran is going to depend on their their continued oil wealth. I think it'd be really cool to see what happens if the world starts to get itself off of a dependency of oil, um, how that's going to affect um, the political dynamics of that region of the world. Um, but in the case of, of, of like, let's say, Israel versus Palestine, um, you know, um, in terms of the Palestinians right now, they are in a, in a weaker position, largely because their own politicians, and this is, this is my own subjective uh, viewpoint here, but... Um, it seems like, I think that, and this is something that you see in Northern Ireland, too, this, this whole notion of perpetuating conflict for their own political means, too. It would take concessions on both sides, certainly. But I also think that, it, that um, you know, oftentimes um, in both parties, both Israelis and the Palestinians, they don't necessarily, you know, let's, let, let's take Hamas, for example. If, they, um, if their constituents were actually going to hold them up for what they actually provide for the people, they may not get reelected later on. Um, but if they attack Israel and Israel attacks them and they know that Israel is going to come in hard and bulldoze houses and kill people and non-combatants are going to be killed, then Israel is the big bad guy again. Um, so I think I'm kind of going off on a tangent from what you're saying, but, but it, I think it does ultimately come down to, to, to who has power. And maybe if the Palestinians, um, if some changes occur within their own uh, political system, then you might, just, might start to see them perhaps more empowered as well thus changing that, that dynamic once again. Here's how I heard the question. Uh, is there any such thing as a moral nation? Mm-hmm. Is there any such thing as is that morality you... in international relations? Okay. All right. oh, I'll feel part of this one. Go ahead. Um, go ahead. I'll... How come <laughs> you don't have a philosopher on <laughs> yes, this is this is history. There is no morality here. Um, <laughs> um, 
morality on the part of nations or morality on the part of leaders? I, yeah, I mean, I think that, that those two can be separated. Um, lead, well, the leader. Good guy and the bad guy in the story. That's not how it works, though. Uh, yeah. It's just a good guy and a bad guy. It's, yeah, it's, it's more nuanced. Everybody's a good guy from their standpoint, and uh, you know, from someone else's standpoint, everyone can be a bad guy. Washington was called the town burner by the Native Americans. So, I mean. <laughs> Well, well, do we? But do we need? But do we need to have a good guy and a? Uh, do we need to have a hero and a villain, or we can? Can we just decide that peace and coexistence are the greater good for everyone? I think. I think in the case of let's say Israel and Palestine, once the Palestinians have a greater stake and have their own state, that's a necessity. They're not going to get anywhere unless they have their own state. Of nations becoming friends, you mean? Um, U.S. and Canada. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, even even the U.S. and the Soviets, right after the end of the Cold War, became became friendly. And even though our relationship right now is not the greatest, uh, we're not fighting one another. Right. You know, we may have disagreements, but we're not fighting. And that was that was a, a you know, we hated one another. I mean, that was the, was that was the, the clash that that defined the 20th century. Those 45 years, well, part of what. I'd say one thing that defined the 20th century. There were many. You had your question. You had your hand up, sir. The idea of, of getting ahead of ourselves, overextending ourselves, thinking hubris, thinking that we're capable of, of, of more than we really are, overconfidence. Yeah, I, I the relationship between legitimate national pride, identity, poverty, and, and this drive to want to go and dominate. That's an interesting question. I don't know if I'm, if I'm <laughs> I feel capable at this point of addressing it. Um, Pardon me? Yeah, that might be another program. Let's let's, maybe talk a little bit more about this afterwards. Um, Did you want to? I would. Well, I would say that when it when it. I I I mean, literally, you cross the line when you cross someone else's borders. Mm -hmm. No, if you're, I mean, if you're creating your, if you're staking out your own, that's one thing. That's nationalism. That's national self-interest, certainly. Um, but once you, you know, by definition, once you cross someone else's borders with the avowed intention of staying and uh, extracting wealth or, or what have you, then you've pretty much be, you know, you pretty much put yourself on a course for dominance. Yeah. You've lost your morality. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, I mean, you know, yeah. Doesn't global trade and commerce, which is good, right, right. Mm-hmm. tend to make national 
shared national interest beyond its borders. Right. Corporate imperialism versus political imperialism, I guess, is... Sure. I think that they'd still be, the corporation is still going to be looking to serve its own interests first, though, yeah, I would, and not I would that agree. of the national. I, I mean, if, it, if it's McDonald's in Africa, McDonald's is going to be more concerned about what's good for McDonald's, not necessarily what's good for Africa. Or what's good so, for the U.S., or, or what's yeah, necessarily for America, good for U.S. America, foreign America, policy or yeah. for the United States. That's what I meant to say. Thank you. So, yes, go ahead, Trish. Why didn't, shown on the map, Palestine and Israel, why didn't the Palestinians try to go for statehood first? Were they just not To accept it? That's part. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. In front of you here. That's, that's part of it. That, that is a good question. Oh, I'm sorry. The question is, why didn't the Palestinians accept the UN partition plan and, and take a, a, a state, a Palestinian state even then? Or right. Out, as, as I heard the question, was stake out a Palestinian state and go for international recognition first. Right. Right. Well, part, part of it was a lack of, of, of cohesion and organization. And you have to remember the same way they're competing for interests. One, each one is competing for their own interests as well. And it didn't necessarily behoove the surrounding Arab states to also champion the cause of the Palestinian state at that point. Um, and and, that, and, and in, the, in the case of the Palestinians, and I can understand this and also sympathize, that they're thinking, well, I don't want to give up any of this, let alone, you know, why should I have to settle for half of this when <laughs> we consider all this to be Palestine? Pardon me? Even if they gave up, you mean? And right to return, you mean? Because there's no right to return for refugees. Um, well, I th- we're talking about 1949 in, the, in that that in the beginning, 1948, when Israel became a, a, a state. But she's saying right then when the UN had a partition plan to to divide the, t- the region up into an Israeli state and a Palestinian state, why didn't the Palestinians accept it in 1947? Um, you know, and that was that's largely because they, you know they didn't they didn't feel the need that they had to settle for half of it. Um, Sure. Right. Mm-hmm. And and also had a cause. Yeah. Israelis had a cause. You know, they were they were uh, you know not to say that the Palestinians don't, but in this case they had a, a, a perhaps um, a, co- a cause with even greater force at that particular moment in history. Yes, sir. Cohesion. Cohesion. Yeah. I'm, I didn't cut him off. <laughs> There's another question in the back, though. Yes, sir. I'm sorry. Right. Right, right. Why give up any of it when we have the whole thing? That was their, I think, the part of the, the thinking. So we're out of time here, aren't we? You've been a great audience. Yes, thank you. Thank you. I want to thank all of you for coming. Again, I uh, encourage you to look for the uh, Middle East history class that is offered uh, in the next coming semester's fall. In the fall semester, it's offered. Feel free to check out any information we have, and have a great day. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu library.